Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with my Agenda Media co-founder, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. How's it going? Good, good. On the agenda today, we have some very positive wins for women to feel good about. Uh, We ask if one hour of sexual harassment training is enough. And our Sporty Rap editor, Madeline Hislop, has just interviewed Tanya Hosh, the first Indigenous person and the second woman ever to be appointed to the AFL's executive. So that interview will be coming up a little bit later on. We're also going to touch on networking today, how to network during lockdown periods and what networking might look like in a post-pandemic world if we ever get there. Thank you for (laughs) listening. Well, hello, Tala. How are you going? Not in lockdown. I know. know. Um, Yes, I am going better than what what I can assume you're going. Uh, How are things at the moment? All good. So I think there's around, what, 10 million Australians now in lockdown. So Melbourne's lockdown has started today, a five-day snap lockdown. Hopefully that will be it. Um, Sydney is obviously we're due for another two weeks at least. Um, I suspect it might be longer as we're not really seeing enough of a downward trend on those cases, particularly who's out in the community. But leaving all that aside, I'm hoping okay. You're in your car again. You're escaping. I'm in the car, a legal escape. So um, I think I would have mentioned this before on the podcast. I have three young kids. So it's that um, it, it is pretty tough, the remote learning situation. And I think to anyone, especially with those younger age kids, which I do have, you know, a kindy kid, a year two kid, um, a toddler at home, like it's that those younger years where they they're not quite ready to kind of sit and learn even for 20 minutes straight or so it really requires a lot of one-on-one attention so it is tough I'm only in you know a few days in massive hats off to those in Victoria who did this for months last year and to those all over the world who managed it as well like it's just a phenomenal feat to to be able to 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 do that for that, that long and so I think back in Sydney we're really learning again what it's like um and of course, I think this time it all feels a little bit different to people. And we might get to that a little bit later when we talk about connecting and networking. But I know that it's very much, we're, you know, two or three weeks in. I don't even know what day we're on anymore, but um, it's, got, it's very Groundhog Day. Yeah. I yeah. know. And it's, I think, made worse by the fact that we just shouldn't be at this point again. But yeah, look, I'm really, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about everyone in lockdown at the moment. And, I just feel like everyone who is kind of juggling multiple things and especially for those people that are juggling kids at home and and other kind of responsibilities, care responsibilities and and whatnot, just be as kind to yourself as possible. As I say to Ange, on a daily basis, drink as much wine as is required. Well, you also tell me there was a meeting that we had the other day where you could see I was particularly stressed out of one of my children and you just said, just go for a run drink a coffee and I was like I've already done all that get out <laughs> get time. out and it was 8 a.m <laughs> they'll be fine I'd already Leave had my there. exercise for the day and it is I have to be frank the, the one thing that's getting like really helping me at the moment is having that exercise and I do it at the same time every day I get out while it's still dark and I see the sunrise and it's great to do that early and um, I've got really sore knees and I'm probably doing a lot of damage to myself because I'm doing so much running, but I really enjoy it right now more than I've ever enjoyed it in my life. So that that's one positive thing to, to take away from it. Well, keep running, Ange. <laughs> keep running. Keep running. about wins for women. So, Tyler, what is your win this week? Well, my win comes in the form of Annabelle Crabbe's latest series on ABC, Misrepresented. And look, I'm only one episode in, I will, you know, be frank, but I just think it's such a a pivotal series and such an important one at a time in which we've just seen so many women across parliament and across parties coming out and speaking out about toxic culture. But Misrepresented goes through the history of women in politics and parliament and looks at the challenges that women have faced and, um, you know, also some of the really key milestones as well. And they speak to a whole diversity of women. And 
it's just so illuminating. It's really kind of wonderful to see so many women, as I said, from different realms of, of politics and, you know, with, with such different views on ideology and, and, and everything else, but just coming together to, to unite on this. And I just think it's, a, it's, it's just kicked off such a great conversation. I just can't wait for the, the rest of the series. I think there are four episodes, so I will get through them um, definitely this weekend. Have you had a chance to take a look at it as well, Ange? I mean, I did get a chance. I was kind of doing a lot of other things at the time, so I tried to put it on in the background, and I loved the, I've only kind of got maybe 10, 15 minutes through. I think there's a podcast, and that's probably more my style at the moment. Um, but I loved that montage at the beginning where they took through like the historical references around women in, in politics and they had different women of all political stripes basically sharing a different part of that story. And it was quite moving to watch as I attempted to watch uh, from a tiny screen in my kitchen while I was trying to clean up the kitchen. But it was so cleverly done. Of course it would be. Annabelle Crabbs created it. So, of course, it's clever and interesting and engaging and, and brings women together in a really nice way that I think is good to see particularly right now. And I think one of the really cool points that Annabelle Crabb made was that, you know, women are often asked about, um, you know, what it's like to be a woman in parliament, but it's, it is often done in mainstream media as a kind of tokenistic question in the mix of everything else. Whereas this is kind of a really deep dive into what has happened where they feel things need to go and and how things need to progress. And I think that's just such an important lens to put on this. But, I mean, it's incredibly confronting as well. And, you know, some of the stories that come out of it, one of them, you know, the first one that is aired when they're they're talking about Joan Poloni, who was this really experienced, you know, liberal candidate. She'd gone through and been a a runner in the uh, city of Sydney and then she you know, they kept saying to her, you need to get more experience, you need to get more experience. So she just kept building up her her kind of credentials. And then she took on, she inevitably took on the seat of Benelong. Oh, yes, only to lose to a 34-year-old John Howard. No one had ever heard of him. He was just a random solicitor at that point, had no experience whatsoever. And that was what happened. And I mean, it just goes to show, I, th- I think that was such an a, a interesting way to frame the entire series. And then the other part that I just found super confronting, I guess, was when they're talking about how Indigenous people, but particularly, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women were spoken about in Parliament up until so recently. You know, they'd, they'd pulled out, that Annabelle Crabb had pulled out quotes from Hansard and one of the quotes she gets Linda Burney to, to read out, you know, refers to Indigenous people as horrible, dirty, degraded creatures. And I guess the contempt for Aboriginal people, which it's an unshakable part of our history and it's such a sordid part that we need to reconcile. But I think having women especially women like Linda Burney, who was, of course, was the the first Indigenous woman elected to the House of Representatives, speak about this and reflect on that part of history and explore why that is just so damaging and why we can never just forget that that happened, I think is really powerful as well. Yeah, um, it was really moving her reaction to reading that material out, particularly um, I just wanted to mention John Howard there, and sorry, I stole your your line. <laughs> you got very excited. I agree. <laughs> no, I got very excited at the time because uh, they also showed this footage of him saying after he, I mean, I can't, I can't remember the year that he said it, but um, he was still looking quite young, still very much probably in his early 30s. But he spoke about the idea that he was, you know, oh, maybe I was kind of in, in the right place at the right time. And he, and he said a line like that and then you compare him. I think he said fortuitous circumstance. Yeah, yeah, he had a very John Howard way of putting it, didn't he? And then um, just to compare that to all the work that, um, you know, his opponent had put in about how she went and just got so much experience, experience, experience and didn't even get a look in it was just such an incredible contrast to to see it was the very opposite of fortuitous circumstances for Joan Poloni that is for sure yeah um so what's your win Ange okay uh I'm gonna say two very quick wins 
So on the last podcast that we published, uh, which I did with Georgie Dent, which did feature your interview with Linda Burney in there. Um, so, but Georgie and I, we, we actually spoke extensively about the Sydney Council that told staff to sign a declaration that while working from home during lockdown, they would not be taking on primary responsibilities for children aged under eight. And they would certainly not be engaging in any remote learning activities with those children. The council kind of put this as a safety issue and suggested that, you know, maybe such parents could take leave or even if they, maybe they should send their kids to school instead, adjust their day or whatever to make sure that they were not working while also supervising children. So this particularly got me given, you know, I've got three kids under eight and to not work while supervising them would mean uh, not working and not running a business and not having an income. And obviously it's different if you are employed, but this idea that your employer would ever ask that of you during a lockdown, uh, and this was a few weeks ago, and suggest, you know, it might be safer to send your children to school at this point was just so utterly ridiculous. And it just really highlighted this idea that there are employers out there that do not see that having kids at home amongst their staff is also their responsibility because we're keeping kids home for the community really you know that that we're doing that is our job we're doing that keeping them home for the safety of the community it is employers jobs to really respect that and to understand that and to be mindful and do everything possible to support those parents so anyway out of that a better story in response to all of that and it comes from a global business that has around 100 staff in Sydney that has actually told parents to take three hours out of their workday for remote learning. They don't have to make up the time at any other point in their day. They've also said that all staff can really take two hours out of their day to, to manage their well-being, do whatever they need to do. And so I'm not saying that this is a win for women. This is a win for parents. This is a win for children. This is a win for everyone when we have businesses like this that take on the responsibilities of um, the fact that we need to be at home right now. Um, But, you know, this organisation does happen to be a women's health-focused pharmaceutical called Organon, which recently launched in Australia. And it happens to be run by a woman here in Australia by Managing Director Narelle Tolsajev. So great to see and really nice to be able to share that story, a nice positive story on Women's Agenda this week. So what's your second win then, Ange? (laughs) Well, I think that maybe you may have missed part of my uh, first win there as we did have some audio interruptions <laughs> taken us a good 15 hours to sort them out and return and tech issues at women's agenda no way <laughs> tech issues in a pandemic yes um no office uh you're getting sorted out in your new house and it happens right so here we go anyway my second i just have to go back to where i was mentally 15 hours ago sitting in my car, sitting in a completely different setup now, by the way, on my bed, surrounded by cushions, hoping that my kids don't come running in the room. My second one, okay, it does start with a bit of local context and a bit of a depressing note. So Australia recently came in dead last um, on a United Nations list ranking its member nations on climate action of the, you know, like 193 member states we were last. There's a few things like where Australia's been on that list. Like, you know, the last we were not doing so well on the list of OECD nations in terms of vaccination. We recently saw this week um, a new report out about childcare and parental leave. We're also not doing great there among OECD nations. But um, on climate action, we're really doing pretty poorly. So start there. But over (laughs) in the European Union, things are a little bit different. So the European Commission President... Ursula von der Leyen has just unveiled this bold uh, plan for the EU to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by the year 2035. And, uh, well, it's ambitious and it will be hard and she's copying a lot of criticism already from um, certain areas and certain corners. Mm-hmm. But it's very much a plan with the future that's... Um, it's about, you know, it's about well-being and it's about social measures. It's about jobs and... I just saw this as a win because there's not many uh, female leaders on that 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 world stage, and we're about to lose Angela Merkel there, who is kind of doing her farewell tour of the international circuit at the moment, and she'll be out mm. of that role by the end of 2021. So to hear her come out and speak so 
just share such visionary language around the plan. You know, she calls climate action the generational task of our time, Mm. one that will secure the futures of our children and children's children. She says there's no nobler task right now. And she talks about choice, that we have this choice right now. Via policy, we can address this while we still can. Obviously, those choices disappear the longer we leave it. So we have this choice to live a better, healthier and more prosperous way. Nice one. Yes. I wish we could get a little bit more of that here. It's just so optimistic and visionary and bringing people together and, yeah, just a lot to learn from it's that. It's what's needed, isn't it? I think that's that's the crux of it. It's like we need people like this in leadership to implement decisions like this because if we don't, then we're rooted. You would have seen this week as well the Liberal government or a Liberal, a heavily dominated committee, um, Liberal committee, uh, actually rejected Zali Stegall's climate change bills as well so yeah yeah I mean uh, I might like speak to Zali Stegall a little bit as well because I just I see her as somebody independent MP there with a vision as well and and using that visionary language and trying to bring people along and saying that we have got a plan and it's positive and it again it is about it is about jobs and it's about securing a better future and Mm -hmm. even when she was elected I remember that night she called herself this promise to be a climate leader for the people of Warringah and I just, I wish we just had more of that aspirational talk and that language that isn't so just about trying to people who care about their legacy, you know, that people who who go into this with, with, with something behind them, with some kind of idea of what they want to leave behind, as opposed to just sort of some idea of power and how long they can hang on to that power. Yeah. We should talk about a couple of quick stories. So we did want to touch on uh, the sexual harassment training that will now be happening in Parliament House. So it's not mandatory. It is maybe mandatory for more junior people. But from what we understand, reading um, a couple of different reports on this, uh, those in Parliament will be required to do one hour of uh, online sexual harassment training. Mm-hmm. One hour. That's great, isn't it? That's that'll really, that'll really clinch it. Why didn't anyone ever think of this before? That's mate, that's all it takes. I also like the fact that of the people that have to take it, the ones where it's not obligatory is for MPs and senior and senior kind of um, leaders in the government. Yeah. Um, You know, given given the allegations that have happened in the last few months and who has been at the centre of those, you might think that MPs are possibly the ones that need this training the most. Uh, but yeah. no, they will not be the ones. It will be junior staffers. So that's that's great. That's yeah, really- and those junior staffers, they have to do two hours. Oh, two. I want to know, oh. what do you learn in the second hour that, like, the OTT don't need in the... <laughs> Maybe they just have to do the course twice. I want to know what this course is. It must be some kind of bloody magic course because apparently after it, you're meant to just come out with this overwhelming awareness and understanding of what sexual harassment constitutes. Yes. And what is sexual assault and what is um, bullying and various other things. So behaviours that do or not constitute those things. I dare suggest that if you don't understand those behaviours, like what the hell are you doing in Parliament anyway? Certainly what the hell are you doing getting elected and putting yourself out there as an elected official? But um, it's a start. It goes back to the empathy training. It is not a start. (laughs) No, no. It goes back to empathy training though, doesn't it? It's like if you need empathy training, you need to get out (laughs) if you are at that point where someone needs to train you on how to be a decent compassionate empathetic human then you know we're we're gone we just need to fold at that point we need to look for some something better we have got a story on this on our website at the moment and um senator larissa waters has has commented on this um sexual harassment training as well as uh this idea of um well the different federal members across the political spectrum who are calling for a code of conduct to be introduced for part for politicians to improve standards for junior staffers and for all women in parliament and that um crosses the greens and and liberals and and sorry it doesn't it crosses the greens labor mps and independent mps um and it follows a summit run by the by anu's uh global institute for women's leadership this week and they all kind of came together to make 
the call to improve parliamentary standards. So, so no there, Ange. So mm-hmm. just on that, and I was uh, I actually spoke on ABC News about this this morning because Madeline Hislop's written this piece for us this week, and she actually interviewed Larissa Waters um, about this. But with the code of conduct, what many people don't understand is that Australia doesn't have any proper measures in place or um, processes in place so that women who have been abused or harassed or bullied in parliament can come forward. It is, you know, the ministerial standards um, are really kind of overseen and uh, I guess dealt with at the whim of the prime minister, which is ridiculous. And as we've seen over the last few months, um, you know, we with so many allegations coming forward and zero consequence for those allegations, um, it is just a, such a deficient system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's little wonder that these women in parliament are kind of just absolutely fed up, want a better process, want to make sure that young women who are climbing the ranks in politics feel comfortable to do so and that they can pursue a career where they will be protected and, and kept safe and secure. Um, and we are also just on the back foot in in terms of every comparable nation to Australia. So the UK, New Zealand, um, Canada, they all have these codes of conduct in place. They all have very specific um, sets of ministerial standards which in which they have to adhere to. And it really does, you know, it, it really does kind of um, not prevent incidents from happening but it, it protects the women that are at the heart of it um and it and it's it, we are just failing there and a study was done to to actually really um highlight how badly Australia was was failing uh when it comes to yeah women's um women's allegations and, and uh you know these incidents um being dealt with in the right way yeah yeah, exactly. And, you know, these are just the fact that most businesses have all these stuff and have for for many, many years, all these things have been, been in place and it's been very clear. And for whatever reason, for those working in parliament where we you know, we really, really need to be able to see and, and know that standards are being upheld, particularly among parliamentarians. <laughs> and just to think that they just don't have anything there's there's nobody to pick up the phone to it's not really there's there's no kind of clear HR department to make a complaint and even not having a code of conduct I mean surely that should be just the most basic first step and I just can't see how any prime minister could not want to say uh yes I will go ahead and I'll create this now just 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 some kind of basic standards so we can well, you would hope so, except that our Prime Minister probably understands that when he does move to do things like this, the shit's going to hit the fan because we know that his government is rife with this kind of behaviour and, you know, allegations that are so sordid and so awful um, and just haven't been dealt with properly. And, you know, once you put proper processes in place, it means that you have to be accountable. Mm, yeah. All right. So on to a different topic. So a little bit lighter. I want to talk about networking in the post-COVID era and also in the current COVID era. I mean, I was speaking to someone in the UK last night who spoke about their experiences there, which have been obviously very different to what we're experiencing in Australia, where we, you know, many of us did return to work in some kind of form. Some of us may have even been to events over the past year, particularly, you know, we ran an event in um, April, which just seems incredible now, <laughs> given where we're at now here in um, in in July. And it seems unlikely that we'll be able to run networking events, you know, this side of the calendar year. So um, it was interesting to hear their situation because those women there are kind of have really obviously taken on so much during the pandemic, like women here in Australia and women in the US and and everywhere all over the world. And there's this sense that people are starting to talk about the hybrid work week. People are starting to return to work and people are starting to do various networking events and connect in person with people again. And it is actually quite a strange thing because it has, you know, been almost 18 months um, w- without that that kind of interaction. So it got me thinking about, you know, what networking might look like 
in this post-COVID world, particularly if we are talking about hybrid work and if we are doing more work from home, if that means that those in-person events, if we're more likely to want to go to them because we see them as kind of sacred and necessary opportunities, or if we're less likely to go with them because, you know, as many of us know, if you're having a work from home day, often the last thing you want to think about doing is is then kind of going into an event after that, where as if you're already at a location and working, it might make more sense to go to something or to um, participate in that over your lunch break or whatever it is. What do you think, Tyler? Is this the end of networking <laughs> as we know it? <clears throat> uh, no, I wouldn't say so. And I genuinely hope not because... I love a good cocktail after work. But I would say that I think things are adapting, uh, you know, pretty quickly. And I think, you know, my move um, up to the Northern Rivers recently is is pretty kind of emblematic of that. And I think a lot of people are making that same call that you just don't really need to be in, in a city centre anymore. And for so long, I would have thought that that was just such an impossible thing to comprehend, to to move to regional a regional town um, and be able to work you know successfully there but I just think I mean look in, in all fairness I'm two weeks in and and it didn't my, work so well my, yesterday when we to yeah absolutely go haywire on Friday but but <laughs> aside from that everything is going swimmingly but no, I, I, so I think that people are making the call to change their lives and live in ways that suit them more. Um, but I do think that that it will an, absolutely be a hybrid um, form of, of how we network from here on, whether or not we do kind of more uh, virtual drinks and events and programs as well as, as face-to-face stuff. And I just think it hopefully, hopefully what will come out of it is that people can do things in the way that suits them and, and is flexible and organisations understand that and understand that, that people's personal lives are as important as their work lives. Um, so I do, I really do feel that that is still one of the most positive things that has come out of this entire pandemic period. But what do you reckon? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about this. So it's it's almost like I feel like the kind of networking you do do and that you certainly do in lockdown can be a lot deeper than what you might do in other times. And I think it starts off being deeper because you can automatically connect with people who are going through something like you're going through. It automatically gives you a question to ask, even though it can start any kind of conversation off on a bit more of a sour note but mm-hmm. or, or a downer, I guess I might say. It gives you, you already have some kind of insight into the life of somebody else. You you have a really obvious and clear question to ask um, when you're kind of going through lockdown or even out of lockdown, if you're kind of returning to work or you can ask about somebody's working situation and it feels quite normal and okay to do that. And it gives you a start to um, kind of go a little bit deeper because from there you might learn about their family situation or their living situation or whatever it is that they're doing out of work, um, how they've adjusted to how, you know, maybe more flexible work or or whatever yeah. it is. I also think that with this hybrid style, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of events. Like I, I don't love going to events possibly because I don't really enjoy um bigger network I've never really felt comfortable with that so and I you know I know that there's a thousand things you can go and read on on how to network and all this kind of thing but I don't necessarily like it's not going to change me from feeling suddenly feeling comfortable with that like it's not something that you can just switch on and go yeah I'm, I'm all I'm all good with this I like to network people in smaller groups and um particularly one-on-one and I think that doing more uh virtual meetings and possibly spending less time commuting it can open up more opportunities to do that and to have those a little bit deeper conversations also to kind of more naturally lean towards doing a video conference as opposed to a phone call or Mm -hmm. or whatever it is so I think that it it does change everything but for it, it can change things and give more options and opportunities if you look to take them for people who might not be into that that bigger kind of networking game yeah yeah you know I, yeah. I think it's also like alleviated a lot of pressure on people to be kind of perfect and uphold this like 
even before when we were doing virtual events or meetings um, prior to the pandemic, we'd be sitting there like having to be stiff and perfect in this kind of business format and business attire. I love the fact that most of the time, even with, you know, the biggest clients and partners that we have, we're just often in our in our t-shirts in in track pants and just people understand that there's no issue with it you know and I I for most people that we're talking to they're in exactly the same boat and they're dressed exactly the same way and it just makes me feel so much better and it's it's such a more it's a way more comfortable conversation no one's trying to kind of keep up this pretense and I do love that. I love that that's what has evolved out of out of this entire period. And also I just love wearing my Ugg boots on any given occasion. So wherever I can do that, then. Well, that's like every occasion for you now, isn't it? So <laughs> I, I personally, I, I like going to an office. We do have an office that we share with a couple of other businesses. I really miss that at the moment. And, you know, often I'll be the only person in our team in that office, but I'll be with other teams and I love being around other people. And, um, and that feels like in that kind of environment, you can go deeper with people. And then finally, I mean, I think that for female entrepreneurs and business owners, and I know that we say this probably from our experience as well, is that the the move to being able to do a lot of, say, business development, um, meeting with people, um, this idea that it's not automatically assumed that you'll go and meet in person. Actually, you know, other ideas are presented first and the in-person thing kind of is is much further down the list. And it changes the game, I believe, for female businesses and, and and entrepreneurs and for those of us who are so time poor and for those of us who, you know, every minute is is money. When, when you're not employed by somebody else, you really have to guard your time and look after it carefully. And it just opens up so many more opportunities to do that. So, yes, I'll leave on one little tip that I, quick, quick, uh, that I learned recently. Um, from Susan McPherson, and she wrote this, who is like a networking expert and author. And this was a few months ago. So I think she wrote this in kind of the, like in the midst of the UK lockdown, you know, that long one that they did for months. And she had this rule that she'd reach out to three to four people each morning just to see how they are with, with no agenda at all, just to kind of start a conversation, see how they are, let them kind of connect in with her. And she had this idea, you know, that, that you, you first of all, it's just so good for you to do that, and so good for your mental well-being to do that. And it it's, it means so much, particularly when you think about you know returning to the world, whatever that is, in a hybrid format, whatever that is, to know that you'll feel more comfortable at that mm-hmm. point with those people because you have reached out. So yeah. I thought that was a really cool and interesting little tip there. I I enjoy it. It's good. Let's so, take that forward. We have an interview that we've been meaning to cross to for about 20 minutes now. (laughs) And I'm really pleased that this has been done by um, uh, Madeline Hislop, who is one of our journalists on Women's Agenda. And um, she's an absolute star. And she wrote that story, which um, we just mentioned earlier, um, with Senator Larissa Waters as well. But Madeline uh, loves women's sport, and so she is the editor of The Sporty Wrap, which is a weekly newsletter that we put out every week that looks at some of the key moments for women in sport and women working in sport, women who aspire to be in sport, whatever it is, it's all covered there. She She's done this interview with um, Tanya Hosh, the Executive General Manager of Social Policy and Inclusion at the AFL, who is incredibly generous with um, her time and, and what she shares in this conversation. And within it, she talks about the power of having a seat at the table, which has brought in the horizon, she believes, of the code and of the other executives that she's working with. And she discusses her passion for inclusion in the AFL and the importance of having that lived and intimate knowledge and experience of what it's like to face discrimination um, and that she can bring that unique perspective to the table. So we did this conversation um, as part of a series that we did uh, with NAIDOC Week. And with NAIDOC Week, the theme of NAIDOC Week was, of course, Hill Country. And so Tanya has addressed that as well. And um, you'll hear a little bit more about that in this conversation. So we'll cross to that now. Welcome, Tanya. Thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Tanya, I'd love to start by talking um, about this year's NAIDOC Week theme, which is Hill Country, and what that notion means to you from your perspective as an Indigenous person. From there, where do you believe that 
believe that we need to do on a national scale to sort of take that idea on board and work towards healing? Yeah, thanks. Look, I think that's a, a great question. And for me, it, it means a lot of different things, as I'm sure it does for a lot of Indigenous people. It's a great thing and a really timely one in many respects. I think when you think about what um, happened with the tragedy at Jukun Gorge last year, I think that really did wake a lot of us up to the importance of um, traditional Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and um, what exists in this amazing land that we call Australia that is reflective of those cultures that go back tens of thousands of years. And when you then overlay, I guess, um, heritage and, and how important that is, I think what happened in that Duke and Gorge tragedy was it made people realise this isn't just Aboriginal history, this is Australian history, this is Australian heritage and it's Australian country. And it matters to all of us to to look after um, our country in that respect. For me as a Torres Strait Islander woman who was adopted at three weeks of age, grew up in Adelaide and still live here now, I've never lived on my traditional lands. But, you know, so for someone like me and, you know, I'm not alone in, in that experience, you know, I've often had to give a lot of thought to my connection and um, and how I can learn to discover that and respect it and demonstrate, you know, an understanding. So that's that's an ongoing journey for someone like me. And then in addition, I think, of all of the really important conversations we're having globally in relation to climate change, recognising that Indigenous peoples all over the world will be probably the most affected people on the planet in relation to the challenges and, you know, really immediate challenges that climate change is um, producing for us all as, as global citizens. And it makes me wonder where and in these processes and global meetings to discuss these issues, where the voices of First Peoples are in relation to those very um, immediate challenges and daily lived impact for people who still do live more traditional lifestyles, whether that be on a daily basis, but also what it means for people who are still engaging in their culture um, all the time in relation to lands and waters and access and the, the health of lands and waters. Um, we often hear it said that, you know, we've all got so much to learn from Indigenous people and yet we don't necessarily seek those voices out when it comes to some of these critical issues. And then I think to broaden out um, to the question about what it means for us as a nation, you know, it's, it's important to think about what sort of healing we have to do as Australians with each other in relation to the worst parts of our history um, in terms of the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been treated and the policies that we've been um, living under and some of the incredibly traumatic consequences that has resulted. Um, when you think about healing our country, it's not just about the, the maintenance and health of lands and waters, it's also our healing as a nation as a whole through the reconciliation process and all the other really important conversations we need to have to make sure that our First Peoples are treated equally and fairly and our status as the First Peoples of the country is appropriately recognised and respected. And I think the opportunities that this theme opens up for us as a nation are really important ones and I hope that people are engaging in those conversations in NAIDOC week. Yeah, great. Thank you. So. For some of our listeners who may not be across exactly what your role is at the AFL, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about your role as Executive General Manager of Inclusion and Social Policy and what that role involves on a day-to-day -day basis for you. Sure. Uh, it's a really broad role and it's one that I'm very proud to hold. Um, I'm nearly five seasons in. It's my five-season anniversary next month. Um, my role is pretty broad. So one of the things that um, the Australian Football League has said for a long time is that we're a game for everyone. And I think that um, my job really is about giving life to that 
concept and trying to make sure that it is a game for everyone. So what that means is that um, I'm involved in looking at issues of inclusion from a whole range of perspectives, obviously Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives, cultural diversity, gender, sexuality, um, transgender, disability, and anyone who might find themselves less included in a game that has come from um, potentially a um, you know, a more disadvantaged background or a background that is not being commonly prominent in the game of Australian rules football, given that, you know, for the longest time it was um, very much uh, managed and um, enjoyed by uh, white men. But, of course, um, women have been playing Aussie rules football in Australia for over 100 years and now we have AFLW, which has just had its fifth season, and that's going from strength to strength every season and that's exciting and it's also really encouraging more and more women to play the game, to officiate in games, um, to be coaches and to participate in all forms of the game, which is really exciting as well. But, of course, um, you know, there are also those times where people who might find themselves um, feeling like they're on the sidelines, um, it's, it's the role of myself and my team to work with everyone in the sector to improve our policy frameworks in relation to supporting the inclusion of people from all walks of life in the game and also to try and grow the participation of people in all different elements of the game. So at the moment, um, for example, it's really great to see that, you know, as of this year we've got three AFL club presidents that are women. Um, that's the first time we've had that many Um we certainly, when I started five years ago, there was only one Indigenous board member on any of the club boards and now there's seven, which is great. And, you know, that's the sort of inclusion we're talking about is seeing it at all levels of the game um, and, and making sure that everyone feels safe to play and to participate in the game, whether they're a spectator, whether they're a player, an umpire, a coach or an administrator. Mm-hmm. So the AFL is a sporting body that historically has had, had some issues when it comes to dealing with things like racism and the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within the game. I'd love to hear from you um, about how you think the sport has progressed since you've started there in 2016 and also the kinds of projects you've been working on recently to shift attitudes among those involved with the sport. Sure. Well, look, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the game has faced some really serious challenges and I think, you know, most of us are really familiar with uh, what Adam Goods went through and that, you know, the travesty of him leaving the game under the conditions he did, um, you know, and that's a very uh, live example, I suppose. Um, you know, in 2019, we're very fortunate that two important documentaries uh, were released called The Final Quarter and The Australian Dream that really um, catalogued a lot of what occurred over that period of time. And as a result, we're able to do a lot of really important work and have a lot of important conversations within the code, you know, with players, with staff, uh, coaches and, um, you know, anyone who's participating in the life of a football club about the learnings we needed to take away. Um, as a result of that, the AFL was able to partner with the 18 clubs to provide a more substantial apology to Adam Goods. And, and although we readily acknowledge that came very late, um, it was still important work for us to do. We needed to face into what had occurred um, and, and make an apology, um, which was um, overdue but um, significant and, you know, important for us to collectively take responsibility for the way that Adam was failed um, towards the end of his playing career. In addition to that, we recently completed a work of reviewing our vilification code. It used to be called Rule 30 and then it became Rule 35. We're one of the first sporting codes in the world actually to establish a racial and religious vilification rule in the late 90s um, and we've obviously needed to update that. So it now um, doesn't just deal with racial and religious vilification, it deals with all forms of vilification. We undertook a really um, 
deep review into the efficacy of the review to really try and understand um, where we were still falling short as a code and where we need to invest more to put more protections in place and also more proactive activities in place to help people understand what is appropriate and what is not. Um, so that's really exciting work that we're going to be implementing. We came up with a huge range of recommendations. One of the great things about this work is that the learnings we've had from the elite level of the game have shown us that uh, this code has been incredibly impactful. We rarely have complaints of um, on-field vilification at the elite level of the game anymore. Um, and that's largely due to a lot of the work that um, Michael Long led in the 90s and on the back of the um, incident where Nicky Winmar found himself lifting his jumper, pointing to his skin. Um, but we know at the community level of the game, it isn't quite as safe. And so we will be investing a lot more work at that level because we do want people to go and be able to play football no matter who they are or participate in the game without fear of vilification because they're not part of the dominant culture. Um, we know that racism, sexism and homophobia exist in all parts of our community. And so, you know, sporting clubs and the sporting platforms are not immune from that. And so um, what we also know is that more and more people will bring to light any incident. So that tells us that there's a lot of people who share our values in relation to not wanting to see that sort of behaviour or overhear racist or sexist language or homophobic abuse. They just don't want to hear it. So um, it, it's up to all of us to work together and for the AFL to play a strong leadership role in equipping people to be able to know how to handle these issues and how to equip themselves better to try to prevent them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you were the first Indigenous person and second ever woman appointed to the AFL executive. And when you're dealing with all of these kinds of issues like racism, sexism, homophobia, how important do you think it is to have someone like you in a position of leadership at the AFL um, when you're dealing with matters of inclusion? Look, I think it is important. I like to think that the AFL executive has conversations now with me around the table that perhaps they wouldn't has regularly had if I wasn't. Um, you know, I think the lived experience and having that intimate knowledge of what it is like to, to face discrimination means that you can bring a unique perspective um, that people who have a less ready awareness of those things are able to bring. And I think that has been beneficial. It certainly means that I'm very passionate about the issues and I feel a degree of accountability back to the different communities that I'm part of in relation to the way that I represent those issues through my work. Um, and it means that I've got a great uh, stakeholder network as well to keep me informed about what's happening on a daily basis on the ground because I think when you do reach um, the level of a, an executive role in some organisations, you can very quickly find yourself distant from a daily reality and I think that is one of the things that leaders are typically um, criticised for is, you know, being a little bit removed from the day daily experience. In a role like mine, so much of my work includes an interface with people from all different walks of life, um, not just within football. I'm so fortunate that part of my work puts me in touch with um, all sorts of communities who invite me to engage with them on a really regular basis, which means that I like to think that I'm keeping up to date with what the current issues are and able to bring those to life to sort of say, okay, how do we as a really large sporting code with a huge footprint in the country, how do we take that privilege and responsibility to show the right kind of leadership, not just in terms of um, the practical execution of how we run the code um, as the current stewards of running the code, but the example we set communities who do pay close attention to the decisions we make in the way that we um you know, take uh, leadership on issues and the decisions that we um, take and put into place. So 
Yeah, I think I think it is important and it is also part of that broader inclusion agenda. I think if you're going to ask other people to be inclusive, then you need to be yourself. Um, and so I really hope that I've been at, at value in many ways. Um, but it's also been great learning because being part of the executive means understanding all the other parts of the business as well. And my job's not an operational one. So any successes that I've been able to be part of um, in terms of my leadership have required other parts of the business to say, yes, you're right, we're going to do that and we're going to execute that. And so very much the success that I feel like I've been able to impact and contribute to is only possible because of the, the great partnerships and the willingness of other people right across the code. And then finally, um, just thinking about the future, you know, once NAIDOC week is behind us for another year and looking forward from there, um, I'd love to hear what your hopes are for the future for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, um, both within the AFL and wider Australia. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we just um, came off a weekend where um, the first um, Indigenous player ever, Sean Burgoyne, who played for Port Adelaide and now plays for Hawthorne, um, played his 400th game of um, Australian rules football at the elite level, first Indigenous person to make that milestone and joins only um, four other players to ever have managed to play 400 games of football, which is an incredible accomplishment, apart from all of the other um, honours that uh, Sean Burgoyne holds, um, having achieved that with his premierships. Um, he's had a great success and longevity as a player. When I think about examples like that and I look back on Sir Doug Nichols' round, and all of the other rounds of football where we see Indigenous superstars of the game just playing so brilliantly, inspiring people um, in the crowds, Indigenous and non-Indigenous um, people. I get really excited about the prospect of seeing Indigenous people um, really harnessing their market share of the game. And to me that means seeing more Indigenous people as um, senior coaches we don't have any at the moment. We do have some in our coaching ranks, but not at that senior level. Um, certainly in the broadcast of the game where we don't see enough Indigenous people having a voice in the presentation of the game um, on our TVs and on our radios, but we're definitely seeing growth there. Um, and, you know, in the administration and leadership of the game as well at all different levels. So um, I definitely do hope to see the growth of Indigenous participation at every level of um, AFL and AFLW for that matter. And then I think in the sort of non-football context, there's so many important conversations um, to bring to conclusion um, for us to make progress as a nation. I'm really interested in conversations about um, the date of Australia Day and how that conversation gets progressed. Um, I'm really interested to see... Um, us deal with the discrimination that still sits within the Australian Constitution um, and for us to make progress in relation to those things. We still, um, when you look at um, a lot of the close the gap measures and you look at Indigenous incarceration rates across the country, that's still a massive concern for us as a nation. It was really wonderful to see the big turnout last year of people coming out to talk about Black Lives um, Matter, um, both in the context of George Floyd, but also what it means for us domestically in Australia and to see how many Australians were um, concerned about the the terrible rates of deaths in custody that we still see of Indigenous people in Australia. Um, that tells me that more and more people are concerned about that and hopefully that that conversation will grow and we'll see much better results and policy responses to the amazing advocacy of the people who lead in that field for us from the Indigenous community about the things we can do better. And then I think the other thing that I also feel really strongly about that we need to address that do relate to deaths in custody is changing the age of criminal responsibility. We have one of the youngest ages in the world of 10 years of age. A child can be picked up, put in a paddy wagon, taken to a police cell and strip searched. The kind of trauma that that um, 
puts onto a 10-year-old child is horrendous. And we know the research tells us that it has a terrible impact on brain development, which continues and often means that children at this age, which are children who are at grade four at school, um, that they often then end up with a long um, history of um, cycling back in and out of the criminal justice system. Um, one of the best ways to avoid deaths in custody is to prevent the custody in the first place. Um, I'm definitely on board with the campaign um, of the Human Rights Law Centre in Victoria with the um, the campaign um, to change the record, to change the age of criminal responsibility and, and lift it to the age of 14 years. I think that's an incredibly urgent matter for us as a country. It's absolutely achievable. We've seen the ACT government make a commitment to um, alter the change of, of age of responsibility um, in their territory and I hope we see other states and territories follow suit. Yeah, I think that's something that all Australians can definitely get behind. Tanya, thanks so much for joining me for this chat today and thanks for all the work you are doing also as a leader in this space. We at Women's Agenda really, really appreciate all your efforts, so thank you. Well, I really appreciate Women's Agenda and the important work that you do and um, I, I love reading it um, every week, so um, thank you for all the work that you're doing too and thanks for including me. Great, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much to Tanya for that conversation. And also thank you to Madeline. That is her first appearance on the podcast and we will be hearing a lot more from Madeline going forward as well. So um, you can check out more from that conversation on our website. So you'll see that story that Mads has written based on that chat. And um, of course, you'll also find everything that we are discussing here and more from uh, some of the interviews and various things that we did uh, with NAIDOC Week and particularly around that theme of Hill Country. All right, Tyler, I have to go and return to whatever <laughs> um, chaos has ensued downstairs. Um, it's, we've been watching a lot of TV, so we have been watching. I have no recommendations in terms of any, any decent TV shows because our television is currently uh, stuck on. It's either the Discovery Channel or Nursery Rhymes, so they're like the Discovery Channel. There's some... Around, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking science. I'm thinking that there's got to be something good in that. It's okay. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I can't help. I can't help with the uh, the watch recommendations either. But yes. Godspeed, my friend. I hope the lockdown is going okay for you and we will chat again next week. I wanted to recommend the fact that we have Women's Agenda Extra is a member platform that basically really supports our work and what we do in terms of publishing every day. So we put out a newsletter every day around lunchtime. We always feature about five to six stories. We, we have a small team that work with us. We are independent, female-owned. Um, we are pretty, you know, we scrappy. We get it done. We've just... And basically every dollar that we've ever made from this business kind of ends up going back into the business in some way after we've been able to pay ourselves something uh, in terms of a salary as well as our staff, obviously. So um, we launched this member platform about a year ago and we are just in the process of revamping it. And as part of that revamp, we now offer members a six-month subscription too and Tyler you really worked on this partnership so I'd love you to take us through what it means but to this awesome platform called Scribd and they've just launched in Australia and we are the first publisher to basically partner with them which is uh we've, we've pr pretty chuffed about and um there is so much stuff on there so Tyler take us through what it is really good um so it is the world's leading digital library of content, which means they've got millions of audiobooks, ebooks, podcasts, and sheet music, which Ange is randomly very excited about. Um, <laughs> yeah. Really exciting partnership. And the whole kind of rationale behind this was that we wanted to do something meaningful for our members um, to give back and to support them in their careers. And this will do that because it will enable anyone who joins to um, you know, have a six-month subscription to access any kind of career content that they need and as well as any kind of trashy books or anything else that you want to access, um, it's all there. Um, and so we hope that, you know, people will take that up and 
you know, we are, we're really thrilled to have partnered with Scribd. I think they're an amazing outfit. They really share the same vision as us as well. Um, so it's all around a huge win. Um, so yeah. go and join Extra. Go and join Extra. And I can tell you, my son is benefiting from Extra. He has been listening to a Minecraft audiobook and it oh, has God. been, it's given us 20 minutes of peace. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Ange. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A big thank you to Tanya Hosh for sharing that incredible interview and a reminder that you can read more from that conversation on our website where you'll also find more on everything else that we've discussed. Lockdown is tough, winter is tough, uncertainty is tough, and I know that we are all experiencing this differently at the moment, whether you are in or out of lockdown right now. So just a quick reminder that if you do need help, please reach out to one of the many available free helplines out there including Lifeline on 13 11 14. There's also Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. And you can contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732. Thanks again. We'll be back next week.